Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community, or join both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainer Sander Durr and his guests in an all-new episode. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. It's been a, it's been a great week. Um, uh, two in a row, like that doesn't always happen, but just got a lot of good stuff going, a lot of good client work done. Um, how about you? Same thing, same thing, except for my, for my side, it's not Friday morning anymore, it's Friday afternoon, slowly heading towards the weekend. You got some people in the audience, so I'm looking forward to this session once again. Yeah, me too. I, I can't wait. I'm, I'm admittedly a tiny bit nervous, like who knows what type of questions we're going to get. Same, but that's always the case, right? The same with the professional scrum courses that we teach, there, there should always be some form of anxiety. Yeah, I, I sometimes say, you know, I, I, I think I've heard all the questions you might have, and then sometimes I'm right, but man, those curveballs are great. They really make you stop and think. What's the toughest question that you ever got in the in the in the courses that you teach? Well, it's kind of a group of questions, but it's really around when a when a, a client or student says, This is our culture, and they describe, you know. Maybe not toxic, but definitely not conducive to some of the things we're talking about. And they're like, what should I do? And that's just hard for me to give a crisp, clear answer on because there's so many variables. I mean, you're talking about potentially hundreds or hundreds or thousands of people. You're talking about humans with emotions, fears, strengths, weaknesses, all those things. And it's just hard. And I want to help. And that's the struggle. What about you? Like, does one stand out to you as like a, just, just a really difficult one? Uh, yes. Um, based on a real life scenario. And it was done in preparation. I got the question in preparation for my whole PSD peer review mm. uh, event. And it was, so I'm working as a scrum master, right, in this team. And now I've fallen in love with one of my developers and she fell in love with me. Now what do I do? Wow. Okay. That's a tricky one. How would you answer that? Uh, 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 okay. Um, I would say what problems do you foresee happening um, if you're committed to – somebody on the team or if you're involved or interested and assuming scrum, right? Cause I heard scrum master, uh, I'm going to come back to the values and I'm going to be, I'm going to make sure the rest of the team knows I'm going to make sure that I'm respectful of everybody. I'm going to try and use empiricism and be really transparent. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a problem. I think it could be a really interesting way to model some of the behavior that the scrum master wants to maybe help the team with, um, or just show to anybody. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I'd have to think about that more. How did you answer it? I pretty much had the same cumbersome thinking process that you're currently having. I, I've asked this question to many other PSTs and never have I heard the same answer. I think that the best one 
that I ever got was from Simon Bark, a Canadian PSC, and he said, congratulations, that's wonderful. When it comes to matters of the heart, nothing matters mm. uh, other than that. So it doesn't matter what Scrum says. It doesn't matter what the company policy is. You do you and focus on that. Right. Coming back to professional Scrum, what we're working on. The Scrum guide does not say anything about this. Right. Period. Right. Uh, but looking at the Scrum values, exactly. Maybe openness comes to play with this. How open can you be about this? What are the potential conflicts of interest that you would get in your team? Are there any? How does the, the team feel about this them, themselves? Have you brought this to, did you bring this to uh, the team, the rest of the Scrum team, and how do they see this going down? Other than that, there might be some HR policies that come to play. But I've been working with this team in the UK, and they had like a married couple on the team mm. that got married while they were already working together. So it has happened before, but it's a tricky question. Yeah, two two things that are kind of related. They're not the same that came to mind is um I was talking to a client a couple months ago and uh she said that she has three I think married couples that work in the same department. And I I asked her if she had to like separate them from team to team and she said I didn't really have to because it just worked out that way. But even HR did not require that. And she said it's really going well because she finds that they're more committed because, you know, now it's not just one person's work environment or one person's success. It's both. It's a risky place for um, an individual. Um, My sister is a working agile coach and, she works at the same place as her husband. And I said, you know, that kind of feels like you've got all your eggs in one basket. And what if it doesn't go well? And they really like it. I mean, it is naturally a little riskier given the current business climate. But so that that's kind of just one recent observation. The, the other thing, and I don't know if this will maybe lead us to another topic or question, but I I don't know if you do this where you you'll be asked something simple, you'll give your normal answer or maybe, you know, a good answer, but then after the fact you'll go research and be like, I don't I realized by answering that question I don't know enough. And I went deep on the word empowerment like 5 months ago and I learned a lot about empowerment and it was because I had a client who said we want you to build and create empowerment in our teams and in our our, our group and all this. And, um, but by saying we want our people to be more empowered, it means that the power has been taken from them. And that could be a feeling of, can I fall in love with who I want to, like Simon said, or a constraint from HR is just that it's a constraint. And is it a real constraint or is it a false constraint? And how does that relate to empowerment? But it was really interesting for me to think that to empower somebody means you have to give them back something or help them take back something that has already been taken from them. Hmm. That's an interesting question or an interesting perspective. Does that relate to like the environment specifically or does it, because when you come in from your private life and then go into like the office, the, the working environment, you have some change in dynamics anyway. You're way more autonomous when you live in, in your home and you do like your private life compared to where you live in the office and that kind of setting. I I think it's different 
But the point that one of the articles I was making made was, or that I was reading made was, you know, no six-year-old understands the idea of, of constraints or of not having power. But then as soon as a human goes into any organized system, they're subject to a whole bunch of constraints. And here in the U.S., you know, from kindergarten on, it's, you know, you got to stand in this line, order yourself from smallest to tallest, and you can't do this, you must do this. So it's kind of about all these constraints. And even at my home, like when you were asking about home, you know, I there's a little bit of work I want to do. And it's like, I want to do this. Well, that doesn't... Um, conform to local code that does, you know, is that going to upset the the neighbors? Is that going to be this? So I think we all have constraints and I don't get to do on my property that I own everything I would like to. And some of that's within reason, but I'm not sure how that relates maybe to empowerment. I think it is related somehow though. I think we could spend like an entire episode just on this. Sure. Uh, but we also got, have some questions from the audience coming in. By the way, if you're listening, you want to join the audience, we'll make sure to structure this a little bit better so you can, we'll create a schedule where you can sign up a bit in, in advance. We'll give you the link. You can join in. Uh, but one of the, the questions that the audience gave us to answer is how to deal with dependencies across multiple teams. I think there's always a funny funny thing to deal with yeah because dealing having too many dependencies takes away that self-managing ability and having too few dependencies or too little communication equally takes away that self-managing ability on the whole as a team of teams because then you'll get more into siloed um, thinking it when you think of dependencies what type of dependency first comes to mind or if the if the person asking this question has a specific example, that, that might help me answer. I think, feel free, by the way, uh, audience, to, to chip in um, what specifics you want us to answer. But I've seen so many dependencies, whether that's interpersonal or when it comes to code. So you have a senior developer in one team and you don't have that same kind of knowledge in the other one so how to deal with that or a specific vendor who's working with one team and not with the other but you're depending on that or the output of one team being a sort of a i'm not going to say a feature factory uh, but because you're dependent on the output of one team that you have to build upon so there are so many different kind of uh, types of dependencies to work with yeah do you typically do you visualize those or how do you map them yeah, at the risk of giving just kind of a, a too high level of an answer, I'll give you a couple specifics. Is I encourage teams to, if they have an external dependency, I so I treat different types of dependencies differently. So let's say for this example, they're dependent on another team inside their company, and that team is made up of different skills and maybe vendor people, et cetera. Um, I would ask them to either to track the work item and as soon as they are affected by that dependency in a negative way, like we might call it blocked or impeded, visualize that and visualize who they're blocked by, like not the specific person, but by the team or entity that they're blocked by, because what that's doing in the background is capturing data. 
And that can show up as a bottleneck that can show up as a lane filling up with work that's waiting on somebody else. Then we have a ground to look for patterns and say, you know, work with this other team takes on average 15 days, but work with every other team at this company only takes six days. How can we work with that team better? So I think one of my specific answers is, how can you remove the opinion and subjectiveness of a dependency problem and make it more quantitative so that you have a platform to go and address it? Um, I think that's, and there's multiple ways I do that. There's not just one way, but I think that's kind of a, a of a common theme. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Something that I've seen happening or, that I notice is how staggering it is, how comfortable we are with just leaving dependencies as is and not trying to, to become as self-managing as possible. Mm-hmm. Right? Like there are dependencies and we kind of accept that. We're not trying to, to get more. Well, let's go back to the empowerment or the self-managing capabilities of let's make sure that we can do everything within our team that we should be doing. And therefore, minimizing the amount of dependencies that we get from another team from an external vendor or whatsoever it's just like no this has always been the case we're fine with that and i think the same with with scaling people are very comfortable implementing a scaling framework but i think that would be the last uh, point that i would go to uh, like my last resort i would first start to downscale the product or think about things that we should not be doing or maximize the outcome that we can do with the current team and the settings and the skills that we have, and only then organically start scaling. But the most common thing that I've seen, and the same with dependencies, we just slap over a, f- a scaling framework and then expect it to work magically. No, we're we're very comfortable with like this setup. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> I have so many thoughts on that, but. You know, that's like if you or I are sitting around saying, you know, I'm kind of chilly and our immediate solution is I'm going to go buy a 20,000 euro furnace for my house or I'm going to go build a fire if wood and sticks in the corner. Like those are both like very uh, problematic solutions to jump to when maybe all we need to do is put on a coat or, or you know, do something. And I... <sighs> When I took Craig Larman's last class years ago, um, one of his first points that stuck with me is the first thing to think about when scaling is to descale and to like actually you, you scaling should be a last resort or to solve a very specific problem. And you should only do that after a lot of conscious thought and attempts at descaling. And even then, only scale what you need to to the level you need. Don't install some big heavyweight policy or process or or framework even to solve a problem that may not re- need that level of response. No, and I it's, it's funny that you bring up this one because it made me think about my own example. This is in the previous episode that we recorded. I noticed some issues on my side when it comes to my audio. Mm-hmm. And I was looking into this, and my first response was, I'm going to buy a new mic. Well, I spent like $500 on this mic and not thinking about maybe I should just go into the settings and try to to figure out what's going on here. No. Bam. Right. 
Yeah, you know, so it's funny that you bring up this this topic specifically, right? Uh, but how do like typically coming back to the dependencies? Do you visualize those on on a physical board? How do you deal with this in any other tool? Do you make sure that they are all aligned? Like a product backlog contains everything, every piece of work for the product that we're trying to build. Do you do the same thing for um, the dependencies, for instance? Yeah, well, kind of like the whole. <laughs> BC and AD thing. I think of BC as before COVID. So a couple ways I did this before COVID and one sticks out of my brain is we had what's called an Obeya wall in an Obeya room. And we visualized all the dependencies, the other coaches and I and consultants with red yarn and magnets on a, on a wall, on a basically a portfolio and program wall. And we did that as an, as a step. Because, but visualizing them and then having leadership sit around and having leaders of the products and the teams sit around and see all the red yarn was, was humbling to say, wow, look at how this piece of work, this feature, this project, look how many lines of string it's got. And one of the the leaders there told me like, this is overwhelming. We're never going to eliminate dependencies. It sounds like you want us to eliminate all dependencies. And I said, no, even eliminating one or two or 20% of them could have a massive impact on those things. And they were like, that kind of response alone unlocked the group to say, we're never going to eliminate all these, but that should not dissuade us from trying to eliminate some. And I do think to answer your, your question to me, I do visualize them as often as I can. Um, and using a variety of techniques, whether it's physical or digital, I think it could, you know, in tools like Jira and Convenize and Azure DevOps, there are many different ways to visualize that. You might have to tweak your tool. You might have to add a custom field or reuse an existing field somehow to do that. But I think that is a worthwhile effort. Yeah, and the power of visual thinking or just visualizing stuff is not to be underestimated, right? It, it makes things so painfully transparent. And the same with impediments, like organizational impediments, not the impediments in your team, but really the organizational impediments. What are things, factors, any influence that are hampering us from reaching maximum potential? Mm-hmm. Same thing. There are so many options that we could start working with as well on the dependency side. Where should we start first? Like, how do we prioritize that? And often it's uh, it's a very simple start just to start talking to people. Yeah. Like, hey, we've got this dependency in your team. What do we need to do to fix this? What can we do? How can we take this into our sprint planning, for instance, that we need to work with on a specific time slot? Can we book something? Do we need any processes or tools or whatsoever? Uh, but don't start finger pointing it. I've got a dependency on your team. Go fix and then leave. No, you're in this together. Yeah. You know, I know that our listeners might want some specifics. So two things came to mind. One is in any tool, right, electronic tool, you could have a field called is dependent. And it's a simple yes, no, or a checkbox. And yes, it is. No, it's not. And if it's yes or true, you could color code it. And then when a team's looking at their board or their backlog or a product owner is looking at their, their backlog, they could say, wow, 
we have a lot of dependent work coming up or in flight. And that might say, who do we need to reach out to? Who do we need to work to? So one, like, don't overthink visual management of dependencies. It could start with something as simple as yes, no. Then if you have a second field, maybe that is who are we dependent on? And it, and you have a drop down list or just a free text field or a, or a person, then you can start to see patterns when you step back and look at weeks or months or quarters of, of work. Um, so I think those are some things. So maybe use a styling rule. Um, and then one other thing that came to mind, and this is just in a, a piece of advice I give all product owners and scrum masters is when you have dependent work, consider that during refinement and say, should we invite somebody else? And one of the biggest tips I give everybody is ask earlier. If you need something from another team and you think you might need it two sprints from now, ask right now and, and build those relationships with your your counterparts in other teams or even outside the company at vendors so that when you do need something, you already have a relationship. Don't try and build those relationships ad hoc or improve them when there might be some sort of acute problem. Yeah, it's not even just the relationship part, right? It's also the availability, like the agenda availability of someone. If you're going to, if you, let's say we, start our sprint planning right now and we discover we have a dependency and I'm going to go to Jim Sammons and this other team to have him help us. The probability is pretty high that your calendar is already going to be booked if I need to start working with you today. So identify these dependencies up ahead, start planning and mitigating them with these people or teams or whatever dependency that you're working with. Also, do not just point to your scrum master to go fix this. Because people are capable of doing this themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I have a team right now that has had a issue that they have been blocked by for about a month. And it says right in the card, blocked by so-and-so. Um, and I've been asking them and, and to, what do we need to do? What what this, what that? And, and they're trying and when they go to that person and say, we really need this thing or this answer from you to progress this other thing, the answer is, I have a lot of important things going on. Um, I, I haven't forgotten about it. I will get to it, but I just haven't gotten to it yet. And they're kind of looking at me and saying, well, how can Scrum solve this? And I said, well, A, I don't know if this is a Scrum problem, but I don't know that you are going to that person with enough information. Like, he, he is telling you, I am working on important things. I know what you need. And he is either right or wrong deprioritizing their ass. So how are they making their urgency and their importance visible to him? What information is he using to weigh, should I do this? And should I take this hour today to go help this other team? Or should I keep focused? And if we have the... Uh, the transparency from empiricism, if we have the openness from Scrum, we can look and say, what is it you're working on instead of helping us? And who or how can we talk to someone different to understand and set an expectation there? So I don't know that Scrum's going to solve that, but a lot of pieces of Scrum definitely could apply to that, I think. Yeah, and again, this is, this is something... 
like Scrum is a tool, right? A means to an end and not the end itself. And uh, Scrum is not there to fix your stuff for you. It's how you act with it. It's how you interact with it. And therefore, the same with dependencies. It's how you work with those dependencies and how to deal with that. Scrum does not say anything about how to deal with these kind of dependencies. I think there's also a very interesting nuance. We're talking about impediments, but you also mentioned something on blocked. And I always compare this to my blood flow. And I go to the doctor's office and he says, well, your blood flow seems to be impeded. There's still blood flowing. Uh, but we need to start working with this because else it might go uh, south down the line. If I go into my doctor's office and he says, your blood flow is blocked, I am scared shitless. Yeah. That's where you really start to need running right away. So, you know, you're going to get a big head, Sander, but I am so happy to hear you say that because you are one of the only other people I've ran across that sees blocked and impeded as two different things. And I define it just like you did. An impediment is something that it's not critical yet. And the example I use is an impediment on a daily commute, if I'm on a highway here in the U.S. with multiple lanes, could be there's a disabled vehicle in one lane. Or maybe there's a, a big branch that float, flew off of someone's trailer. And it could be impeding my commute, but it's not blocking it. Whereas blocked is there's a jackknife semi-trailer blocking all the lanes and traffic's at a dead stop. And so one of the things that I ask teams is, are you impeded or are you blocked? And they say, well, what do you mean? And, and you know, to come back just to the scrum guide, it, it defines that kind of loosely and as a, and many companies use those as synonyms. And I try not to, because I do think no. there's a severity and impact difference between impeded and blocked. Synonyms are killing the industry every time, every once and again. Uh, it's the same as Agile Scrum. Right. What do, you, what do you think of this Agile Scrum framework? Well, there's a very subtle difference. It's like a, a salmon, and I don't mean you. <laughs> every salmon is a fish, but not every fish is a salmon. It's the same with Scrum. Not Scrum is an Agile framework, but not every Agile framework is Scrum. Yeah. And it's the same with impediments. Don't overcomplicate this. Right. We're blocked. Are you really, though? Right. Right. Yeah. And I think blocked impediments, dependencies even, give people a, a platform for curiosity and a platform for creativity to say, okay, you're blocked by that person. Is there any other way that you can solve that problem? Or if you're a product owner and you're like, look, I have three different options on how to solve this. I can do it this way, this way, or this way. If one of those ways has three or four built-in dependencies and two of them have none, that might influence what you do. Or maybe you do one of them right now and then create a little bit of, maybe we call it tech debt or just uh, an opportunity to pivot later to something that is a dependency. So I think... So many people just want to get overwhelmed and I, I hesitate to say play the victim card, but, oh, well, I'm dependent on all these people. I'm never going to get anything done and screw it. What's the point of even of even trying? And I think people like you and I are sometimes in a position to make them think, are you truly? Or you're saying you have no option? No. 
think about this, which if you would have like a similar situation when you're doing some construction work in your house with working with vendors and, and all these installation companies, would you lay back in the same way as you're doing in the office? Like, nope, I'm blocked, not going to do shit. Yeah. Probably not because it's your money who's depending on it. Yeah. Who's Or what's on the line. Well, you know, God, it, it's like you're in my brain. It's Friday morning and you're in my brain. You, sh- you should go enjoy your weekend because I'm coordinating <laughs> some work at my property right now and there is a cement component to it. I'm going to pour a floor in an outside building. Well, the cement person said, have you thought about the electric and the heating? Because I am also going to do those things. And I said, yeah. And he goes, well... You know, the electric can be done independently. It doesn't have to be done before or or any point at all. But if you're going to do radiant in-floor heating, that's got to be done before the concrete. And I said, okay, what exactly needs done? And that helped me organize my brain. Like, I got to go get this answer, this answer, and this answer to get him to take the job and give me an estimate. And then I know that before he can even start maybe step five, I have to have X done. And then what that led me to do is ask the heating people, if I give you money now, how long until this is done? And if they say two weeks, I can be like, oh yeah, I'm good because he isn't going to start for four weeks. But I'm dealing with this right now. And it has led me to um, really look extremely hard at solar because solar has some negatives um, but it also has some positives of it can be adapted to existing systems. I can do it completely independently. And I don't need a massive solar system uh, on this barn. So I can do something small right now, make that investment, get the project moving. And then I will have the option later to do I want to dig a trench and put a real, you know, buried electric in or what. And I am taking an agile approach to the work and I'm just curious, are there any examples like in your personal life right now that you say, yes, I am taking an agile approach to this thing I'm dealing with? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, my private and work life kind of blended because this really is more of a, of a hobby. So I'm spending a lot of time doing whatever, whether it's on the podcast or preparing the courses or writing a book together with Brian Brooke and more in on that in a future episode, uh, but writing blogs and so on. And the, the, the example that comes to mind quickest would be writing the book because we're really doing this in an agile way, uh, not spending as much time as uh, I, on it as I would like, but we're gathering feedback as soon as we can. So we write a little bit, maybe half a chapter, maybe a full chapter each. We integrate that into like a master version of the book. And then we bring this out to the proof reading uh, channel, group, panel, whatever, uh, in our Mastering Agility Discord community. Mm -hmm. And then they read this. They provide us with feedback. We adapt to that feedback. And then we're going to stack on to that. We're going to work on it from that point on. And then every once in a little while, we do a little retrospective. How have we been doing? What could we do better? Uh, whether that's on the book itself or like the structure behind it, um, the whole processes and tools, how do we define our definition of done? And that's, I think that would be the most apparent 
example of how I see an agile example in my own life currently. Yeah. And that that could be a whole topic for a whole other show. I don't want to send us down a tangent, but when when we think about dependencies, there's there's no shortage of dependencies in life. Um and I just I always find it curious how people address those in different aspects of their life. Yeah. When it comes to dependencies, a different example, we had our chimney redone like two years ago because it was leaking. They get, this external company came in, had to inspect because of insurance, water damage, these kind of things. Because internally, uh, the wooden cabinet that was below it started to rot, the whole shabam. They came in, inspectors, uh, they made a report and they said, this needs to be fixed, you go fix. Then only then, when this dependency has been resolved, the insurance company can actually provide you with the money that you need for this. All right, so we go to this external vendor, they fix it, and now two years later, same issue. So now again, we're in the whole new process. We have to wait until we get the report that's going to be our dependency so we can go to the construction company, and only when the construction company has the report, they can do this, and then when it's fixed, we can go back to the insurance company. So again, a lot of dependencies who are integrating with a very annoying process, but I'm not going to sit around there and wait or start to to magically dissolve because else the water damage in my house is going to be even bigger. Yeah. Um, one, do, do you want to spend a few more minutes on dependencies? Because I have one or two thoughts, but if, if we want to move to another question from the audience, I'm happy to do that too. Maybe a quick few minutes and then uh, we'll continue okay. on the on the next question. Do you often in uh, in your work get the question or maybe not even a question, but a challenge about like, why does Scrum just call people developers? What about this role and that role, BA and tester, and I'm just this person? Do you get a lot of challenge on that or is that not an issue maybe with your clients? Yes. A lot. Like every other course that I teach or environment that I go to, I get the same question. Yeah. Well, what about managers or what about UX? Right. But they are developers as well. I think it's a very interesting question. Why would you need to be a coder to be a developer? Right. Ooh. And you also just mentioned another word, coder. Uh, I Somebody just this week asked me how I feel about the word coder. I said, well... I'm not a software developer. I never have been. So it doesn't bother me. What's your thoughts? And and he said, I don't like coder. I, I feel like he felt like it was too, it was demeaning almost to say, I'm not just a, somebody pounding on a keyboard writing code. To him, that evoked memories of, uh, or vis- visages of like mainframe coding and all that. But anyway, whatever we call it, um, my answer and what made me think of this is, is your uh, dislike of synonyms. And I do think synonyms are killing our industry as well. So in the last class, this came up a lot because I had a bunch of different roles of QA, DevOps, um, project managers and all this. And I said, look, um, and, and pardon me, I know we have an international audience, but in the in the U.S., we have uh, one of my childhood heroes was an athlete named Bo Jackson, and he was kind of one of the first major people to cross different sports. And um, if you read his biography, he he played track and field. He's now a, a master level archer. 
uh, obviously huge success in football and, and um, baseball. And I said, look, in scrum and in agility, we're after creating athletes and not quarterbacks or goalkeepers. And people are like, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, like you said, all goalkeepers or quarterbacks are athletes, but not all athletes are quarterbacks or goalkeepers. So it's more about team success and more about you're a member of this team, but you have specific expertise. And it doesn't mean that you're not an amazing expert at something very specific, but in my belief, growing a workplace version of athleticism is better for the team. It's better for the company. And it's really better for the individual, in my opinion, than saying, I only do this. And all I want to do is this because that creates dependencies, what I call an intra-team dependency, meaning I'm dependent on you, even though we're on the same team after the same goal, which is sometimes easier and sometimes harder to deal with than an inter-team or, or outside the team dependency. Yeah. I think it has a lot to do with the semantics in general as well. Right. right? People are looking for that structure. Well, what, where do I fit in as a, in this case, a software developer or UX or whatever you're doing, a tester? My question usually is, why does it matter? Well, because ultimately we're a team trying to move the ball downfield as a whole. So let's see what kind of skills that we need to get that done. And then let's let's try to figure out how we can intertwine and how we fit that puzzle together. Um, but it's usually the, it's more on this is me inside my box. Uh, what should I do and where can I point to someone else? And when I've asked software developers specifically about why does it feel uncomfortable to consider yourself a athlete versus a specialist, the common answers I get are, well, that's not what my experience is in. That's not what I love to do. And that's not what I want to spend all my days doing. I don't want to have to worry about testing or business analysis or uh, mid, mid-tier mid work if I like being front-end. So part of it is maybe they're their, um, you know, their opinion on what they want to do. Some of it is, I don't think I'm allowed to do that, or I'm not as capable as somebody else of doing that. And then some of it might be, I don't want that skill to atrophy that could hurt my career goals or et cetera. So I really like getting at what is really behind the objection and, and just, dismissing the initial objection a little bit and trying to go deeper and say, what is behind the objection? And let's talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Cause those are dependencies or yeah. Dependencies and the, the same with the right. uh, impediments. The only part that I, I identify with uh, from an athlete is the word eat inside athlete. Mm. It's just the eating part. <laughs> nice. Yes. I mean, yeah, you know they got a they got a big engine to feed, you know, so they they normally can consume lots of quantity, for sure. Oh, 100. We were in such a good flow in this discussion that we completely lost track of time. Now we'll be back next week to continue this discussion, and hopefully, you'll be there listening to us once again. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button. Share it with friends and colleagues sharing a message on LinkedIn, or joining our warm and welcoming Discord community. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. 
We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility podcast.